Uh, tonight, I want to talk about. Does that sound okay? I want to talk about cultivating seeds of joy, which is a phrase Thich Nhat Hanh uses, uh, in our practice, in our life, in the service of awakening, and that's really important. And of course, the whole path is much vaster than our meditation practice, which we can sometimes lose sight of in the middle of a retreat. And the meditation practice itself is so rich and so deep and so vast that it can seem to be everything. But the breadth of the Buddha's teaching, if you read in the different suttas and discourses, uh, it covers a whole range of our experiences in life. Meditation practice is only a part of it. And in many different aspects of the path of our life, uh, I want to talk about a few that we can specifically draw on as ways to cultivate a sense of happiness or joy, what is often called gladdening the heart, which we sometimes lose sight of in the depths of a meditation retreat, or we also lose sight of in the depths of our life at times. And it's not that every moment should be a joyful, happy moment. It won't be. But there are times, as I think um, many of you know all too well, on retreat or in life, where the, the difficult, the suffering aspect is so visible, so strong, that it seems to be all that we can perceive. It becomes uh, like a veil, and the only thing we can see in our practice or in the world is suffering. Now, of course, we've gone, it is a very important aspect of our understanding of coming to freedom of heart and mind is, of course, the understanding of suffering and how we get caught, how we suffer by our um, really incorrect perception of experience, our inaccurate idea of what happiness really is, and the confused ways we go about in our ordinary minds of trying to be happy. And we've talked about that a lot. I have to, of course, put it in. But just to, we talk about that so much. And in our practice, what um, happens often and I think it needs to happen, is, is that we do get sometimes, and sometimes for seemingly long periods of time, quite focused on the transitory, the unsatisfactory aspect of all experience. And we need to be, you know, really kind of hit over the head with this over and over simply because we are so conditioned and ingrained to view life as otherwise. But there are times when we get, you could say, stuck there, where all we can see, all we can project is is difficulty, is endings, is falling apart, and in a way that isn't freeing, that is not onward leading. Because, of course, the whole purpose of our spiritual life is about freeing the heart freeing the mind. And as the Buddha said, you know, there is no higher happiness than peace. That's the whole point of our practice. But on the way to this highest happiness, there are various other kinds of happiness, and there are uh, practical ways, even in our practice here, that at times when we're seeming to drown in the suffering, where it's not just suffering, it's bleakness, drabness, total negativity, you know. I'll give an example. I wasn't on retreat, but I I call these periods dukkha periods, whether it's on retreat or whether it's in life. When in life, maybe there's just been a whole series of times when people you know are dying, people you know are sick. You don't see relationships coming together. You see relationships coming apart. And it just seems like the accent is on the impermanence or the transitory or the unsatisfying. And then that starts to be the glasses we see through. I was giving this example. 
the other day to someone years ago when I was on staff here, a couple, two people who were on staff got together uh, in a relationship. And they were walking down the driveway holding hands here. I, I see it in my mind's eye. And they were so happy. And I was in a dukkha period. And I turned to whoever I was with next to me and said, I give him six months. <laughs> that's, the, uh, that's the veil. That's not helpful. That wasn't coming from the freedom of a heart at ease, you know. That's unbalanced perception, which I'm happy to say they're married. They have a kid. As far as I know, they're happy. Not always happy, you know, but so that was wrong. That, that wasn't clear seeing. So I want tonight to try and talk about hopefully not too theoretically, some practical ways that we can consciously access seeds of joy, not to pretend difficulty doesn't happen, not to get lost in, you know, pleasant feeling, but to to gladden the heart, to open the mind, to actually, it leads us onward to deeper understanding, to greater peace to the real happiness, the heart of non-clinging, that is not dependent on any particular mental state. So, the first thing to talk about is really what do we mean by happiness? Now, this is a word, or joy, that we might, each of us, be interpreting very differently. It has many connotations. And even within the very precise language of the Buddhist terminology, um, happiness, there are different words for happiness. Remember when I put up that transcendental dependent arising and there was a word for joy, there was a word for rapture, which is piti, there's a word for happiness, which is sukha, joy is pamoja. Those are referring to very specific mental states, all of which we could lump under happiness. And there are also other forms of happiness. So I'm not speaking so much tonight from the precise Abhidhamic perspective, but I think it is important for each of us when we find ourselves reflecting or mulling over or looking for happiness that we don't just take that word or that concept at face value, that you you look a little deeper and see what is it you're really wanting. And of course, you know, as long as you're wanting it, forget about happiness. That's That's the other trip. So these seeds of joy, just reflections most of these are, as ways to access the happiness that's onward leading and as something that can support us when we're in this really difficult phases, rather than just sort of passively waiting and hoping that piti arises sometime, you know, in the distant future, that some kind of sukha will come and brighten our life, and then we want it, and then we crave it, and then we compare ourselves to others who sound like they have it, although it, we don't even know what it is. And we, it just is onward leading to more suffering. So that's not... what I'm talking about. The guiding principle, I would say, when we're thinking or speaking about gladdening the heart, states of heart or mind that are onward leading to peace, to freedom, to giving up clinging, the heart and mind of non-clinging, the guiding principle is really that. A wholesome state of joy or happiness It can be triggered by many things that is non-clinging in the experience of it. In other words, it's not self-referencing back to me, me, me. And a lot of these different things I'll talk about can at times be experienced just this way in a very non-self-referential, non-clinging, onward-leading way. And the same experience can then also be seen as starting to refer back to me, me, me. And it might be experienced as pleasant, but it isn't the same type of happiness or joy that's going to gladden the heart, bring faith, bring bring brightness and lightness and energy to our system. So I think you get a sense of the difference, and I'll keep 
giving examples of it as we go along. So to talk about really many different kinds of pleasure, joy, happiness that we experience, starting with, believe it or not, sense pleasure. Sense pleasure is a form of pleasure. The Buddha never said it wasn't. And he didn't actually say that pleasant sense experience in itself is bad. But if you look at most of our common sense pleasure experiences when we're not really paying attention, the danger of it isn't that you know sense pleasure is bad and we shouldn't have it, or that it can't for a moment bring us a kind of happiness. It's that for most of us, the movement from the experience of the moment of pleasure to clinging, to trying to get it, to trying to hold on to it, referring back to me, 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 is so quick and fast that we almost can't tell the difference, that we get completely and very quickly caught up in that cycle of wanting and clinging and longing and separation and neediness and all the experiences that actually hide us from the state of deepest happiness, of peace, of non-clinging. It strengthens when we're not seeing clearly. Sense pleasure when we're not paying attention can strengthen our confusion, our sense of imprisonment. I don't know if you remember earlier in the retreat, I read from a sutta uh, called The Two Darts, where at one point the Buddha said that for, for ordinary people, the only escape that we know from unpleasant sensation is to crave after, to lust after some pleasant sense experience. So on the, on the first level, you could say, of pleasure, of happiness, that's what we've learned, that's what we know. Go towards some pleasant sense experience. And the drawback of it is just that we get caught there. Unless we have another way to look, another avenue into our experience, we just keep spinning in that cycle of going for more pleasant experience, going for more pleasant experience. And the more subtle happiness that isn't so self-referential, that isn't dependent on sense pleasure, we actually can't even quite imagine what else could give us happiness. You know, as long as we're sort of in the thrall of this cycle of going after sense pleasure. I read an interesting sutra from the Buddha uh, where a householder went to him and was basically saying, let's see, I'll try and shorten it. He's saying, we're householders and we, now this is old style translation. He says, we indulge in sensuality. We delight in sensuality. Now that just means sense pleasures, you know. We really enjoy it. We rejoice in sensuality. <laughs> he's like really, you know, appreciating it. And he's saying, so for us, when we hear about renunciation, renunciation, it just seems like a sheer drop off. That's the translation, like, Bleh, you know. And even though we see and we hear about young monks and nuns who, when they, um, their hearts leap at the idea of renunciation, they get really joyful they grow confident. They really see renunciation as peace. And we've seen that this happens to these young monks and nuns. But for us, when we think about renunciation, you know, it's like, oh, sheer drop-off, forget about it. Which is true, isn't it? When we're first in sense pleasures, even a little renunciation, we go, oh, that sounds so awful. That sounds so bleak. So this is what I like. The Buddha said, yeah, it's true. And even for myself, before I... Uh, became awakened. Before I became involved, I thought, he was still an unawakened bodhisattva. He said, I thought, renunciation is good. Seclusion is good. But my heart didn't leap at the thought of it. You know, <laughs> I thought it should be good, but it's not really making me happy. I'm not seeing it as peace. It's not bringing confidence up in me. And then he said the thought occurred to him <laughs> is why, you think, why not? You know, if I think it's good, but my heart isn't leaping, why not? And he looked at himself and he saw, oh, it's because I haven't really understood the drawbacks of sensual pleasure. So as long as I don't understand the drawbacks, I'm caught there. 
once I understand the drawbacks, I'm able to, it doesn't mean you give up sense pleasure completely, but to renounce that clinging to it and then open to the joy of renunciation. And this sutta, I won't read it, it goes on and on. He, he takes that through all the different jhanic levels, through all the different kinds of deep happiness, piti, rapture, sukha, through all the different understandings. Each one, he sees it, he appreciates it, and then something in him lets go and he moves to the next. It's not denigrating anything previous. It's just seeing it's not all there is, releasing the attachment to it. And I think... I really like that, because to me, first, it made the Buddha human. I could relate. That was only the first one out of that whole list, but I could relate to that one. And I think it's why the dangers of sense pleasures get hammered on so much in the suttas and here, because we are so uh, overwhelmed with the possibility of sense pleasure. And it's so easy to miss the clinging in it. But I want to point out, because it's something people have asked, and I've gotten notes about it, that understanding the drawback of sense pleasures doesn't mean we turn off and don't appreciate anymore. Doesn't mean you can't appreciate how good the ice cream tasted the other day. If, on the other hand, as someone told me, it was last year at the end, in the groups at the end, that on one of those days, I think he'd eaten either one or two whole pints of Ben and Jerry's. <laughs> he said, don't worry, there's enough for everybody. <laughs> the thing, you know, did you really enjoy it? And he said, not really after a while, but it was just that you just get going. You can get the difference. One can enjoy the taste, but you don't need to eat two pints. Or with nature, which is, I think, where uh, the, almost the fear that if we see the clinging and sense pleasures, we're going to stop appreciating. It's not so at all. Part of the joy of renunciation is that when we're renouncing the clinging, we're so much more able to appreciate just what is. There's a saying I love from the Buddha that um, what is beautiful in the world remains so, but the wise one no longer strives after it. So looking at that sunset tonight, I looked out my window. It was pink, the whole sky. It was beautiful. Our job, really, is to learn to tell in ourselves the difference between that appreciation. It's not referring back to me, how good does it make me feel, or how can I hold on to it, but that appreciation that really opens us up, takes us out of ourselves. It's onward leading. It brings in a brightness, a lightness in the mind, in the heart. It energizes. And so it's often very skillful when you're feeling tight and drab and bleak and striving here, when we're in nature, to go outside. Not to try and grab some sense of happiness, but just to appreciate. And someone else asked me, um, in the Buddha's time, did they ever you know, appreciate nature or such? Or is it all you know, this anti-body, anti-beauty? It's not at all. If you remember... The monks and nuns, they were living outside all the time, living under trees, living in forests, living in beautiful deer parks. And so I looked up this one poem. This is from the monk, the disciple of the Buddhas, Mahakasapa. Now, he was the one who was most renowned for his asceticism. Even before he ever came to be a disciple of the Buddha, he was an amazing ascetic. And after the Buddha died, he was the most senior monk, the one that everyone looked to, to hold the Sangha together. So Mahakasapa, more ascetic than any of us, I think, could even begin to imagine. And there are, there's a long poem, I'll just read a few stanzas. He was asked over and over, why did he keep living in the forest, in the mountains? Why didn't he come and live in the bamboo grove or somewhere a little more comfortable? And it's because he loved the nature. He said, there's a couple of standards. Spread over with kariri garlands, these regions are delightful to my heart. Resounding with elephants, so lovely. Those rocky mountains give me delight. Their lovely surfaces lashed by rain. The mountains are resorted to by seers. 
echoing with the cries of peacocks, those rocky mountains give me delight. Wild gorges are there where clear water flows, haunted by monkeys and by deer, covered by wet carpets of moss. Those rocky mountains give me delight. The music of a five-piece ensemble can never give me so much delight as I derive when with one-pointed mind I gain insight into the Dhamma. We had to put that on the end. (laughs) But that's the point. The delight he's gaining, that he's experiencing, is onward leading to really seeing into the truth. It's supportive. It's a supportive condition for awakening. So I, I think it's just part of our practice to explore in yourself the difference between the joy and sense pleasures in these natures that keeps us on the cycle of wanting and needing and self-referencing and that helps us open to appreciation and joy and peace. And then this peace we take back into our mindfulness to just explore whatever's arising next. So as long as I've talked about Mahakasapa, I'll go in on to appreciating the joys of renunciation, not on that level, although you could if you want, but simply even on the level of the renunciation each of us experiences being on a retreat like this. Sometimes it might take a conscious reflection, you know, because we might lose sight of the joys of renunciation. You might be sitting there to see some puzzle looks like, what is she talking about? But if you look, you can see an incredible sense of spaciousness, simplicity, and ease that can come even from a small moment of renunciation. For instance, the times when you're drinking tea or walking outside, whatever you're doing, and there's a simple moment of pure presence where you just really appreciate the beingness of the tea or the walk or the nature or the gurgle of the water fountain, you know, whatever it is. That moment is accessible to our consciousness because in that moment, even though we don't think of it as renouncing, in that moment we're not caught up in looking for sense pleasures. There's a kind of seclusion, a quietness of the mind that isn't battered by the hindrances, that isn't wanting something, that allows the simple piece of presence to be there. On a little more active level, the kind of simple renunciation if you're in line for breakfast and it's egg day and you're, you know, a few people behind you and there's three eggs left and you really want an egg. You're dying for an egg. You've been waiting six days for an egg. But in that moment of going by, you can say, you know what? There's more people behind me. I can let it go. And it's not some aren't I so great. It's a real letting it go. There's a, a sense of real joy and ease that can come with that kind of renunciation. And we see in that that the things that we want or need in our mind are the things that bind us. And the renunciation, and it can be little, can bring quite a spacious joy, a lightness, an uplifting of heart and uplifting of energy. And, I mean, people give me little examples all the time in interviews. So I I want to point it out so that you can appreciate those moments for yourself. It's not that you should knock them away and say they're nothing. I think a common misconception we can get into in our practice is we look so hard for the kalesas, but we forget that right effort, the Buddha, when he described right effort, gave four elements to it. The first two deal with you know, not allowing unwholesome, trying not to allow unwholesome um, mental states to arise if they haven't, and if they have arisen, to not to abandon them, not get lost in them. But the other two are having a zeal for um, the arising of unarisen, wholesome factors, and the arising, the ones that are already arisen that are wholesome, to appreciate and allow them to continue. That's different from ego. So in a moment of renunciation and that that joy, that appreciation, let it fill your mind and body. Believe me, when it turns to I'm so great, it'll stop being so uplifting. 
it'll stop filling your mind and body with a kind of joy, and you'll feel like, ooh, again. So just recognize, okay, well, now we're back to the first two (laughs) wise efforts. But I think we often tend to overlook or give short shrift to moments of wholesomeness. They don't have to be big. You don't have to renounce the whole world, but you can notice the moments here, and they're quite, quite helpful. When I was in Thailand as a nun, I think I mentioned before how in the beginning, of course, it was quite difficult for many reasons, but a big reason is simply the level of giving up of comfort and giving up of the way of life I'm used to and the food and the weather and sleeping on the floor and all of that. And for an aversive personality, that's what comes up when you don't get what you want, aversion. That's how it works. If it was a greedy personality, then greed would come up, not that one's really better than the other. Um, But anyway, that's suffering for a while. What happens in the joy that came after some months is the simplicity of the lifestyle. I didn't really think of it as renunciation anymore, but it really was. The simplicity of the lifestyle and then not having so much choices of things to do or things to go towards, you know, sort of like here. What do you want for lunch? It doesn't matter. You get what there is. <laughs> That's actually, if you can be content with that, it's a huge relief. And people, some people have told me when they stopped eating after tea, if that's a choice you make, something that surprised them was actually this sense of ease, of lightness, of joy, of just not having to deal with that whole mishigas in the cafeteria, you know, one more time. It's just this sense of, ah, spaciousness, ease, a joy that can come from simplicity. Now, we would never have the chance to appreciate this, really, if we didn't somehow, for some moments, if we weren't able to not be caught up in wanting sense pleasures, right? So it's not that they're bad, but as long as we think sense pleasures are the highest happiness, we don't know how to explore and experience and let in more subtle, more pervading, and more supportive types of happiness. That's all. So a joy of simplicity, of renunciation. Another very strong avenue that gives rise to various kinds of joy, of peace, strong experience of our connectedness, lack of separation, is the whole uh, area of dana, or generosity. As I'm sure you know, whenever the Buddha taught, he would always start with dana. He kind of had a like a set order that he would teach in. Starting with lay people, he'd talk about dana, then he'd talk about sila, so I'll talk about that next. Then he'd talk about bhavana, the whole field of mental cultivation and development through meditation. So dana, if you look at it, generosity is really an expression, isn't it, of non-clinging. It's an active expression of a sense of connectedness a sense of letting go rather than holding on, rather than self-referencing. It's a practice of letting go of self-cherishing. It's really an active opening of mind and heart to non-clinging. And because there are many forms of dana or generosity, and in the world, when we're not in meditation, um, it's a very active thing one can do, It's a very good source of practice, both of freedom, of cultivating non-clinging, of cultivating a sense of our oneness, and also of bringing happiness to our heart, of gladdening the heart. Have you ever noticed when you really are generous, whether it's with your time, whether it's with giving something, whether it's just with letting someone else have something you want and they don't even know it, how really happy that makes one feel? when we really do it. I know sometimes it's a little grudging, you know, and it makes us feel sort of good, but you couldn't quite stay happy. But it's a start. But again, when I was was a nun, I think it's when I really understood, began to understand, I can't say I understand it completely, of course, the depth of real joy that I could see in people 
from their incredible generosity. It's one of the most uh, humbling and really profound lessons for me of living as a renunciate, as a Sangha member, because one lives completely on the generosity of others. And without even asking, I mean, you don't ask. And even though, I must say, for nuns in Thailand, it's a vastly different scene than it is for monks, and they aren't supported in the same way or with the same enthusiasm over the whole group of people, like the whole country, my experience in the short time I was there, only a year, was such total, loving, joyful support that it really blew me away. There was no sense of we should do this. Now this foreigner has come. She has more than we do. And here she comes to our country, you know, living off of us. I could imagine myself thinking something like that. There was nothing like that. It's much more like, oh, we're so happy that you're here. Let us give you your robes. Let us give you your food. Let Please stay in the best kuti. You know, let me take you here. Let me take you there. At one point, my back got really bad, and I was staying at a place way out in the country, like two or three hours by a really bumpy bus. And, and so a woman who was a nurse who had, would come out sometimes to sit there took me to her house in town for a month, insisted on cooking for me every day. I mean, you can imagine, I was incredibly uncomfortable with this which is a good lesson because that actually blocks the kindness. She was so happy to get up at 5 a.m. and cook me this giant breakfast and then come home from her job as a nurse at like 10.30 so she could cook me lunch, you know. And to see the stuff I went through from my Western conditioning and we take care of ourselves and I'm beholden to nobody, it's so isolating, that attitude. It's so separating. It so, so blocks the real connection that we all share. And when I began to let in the generosity and just tune into the people as they were offering, there was a, a transcendent kind of joy that came about. And I have to say, that was my um, unvarying experience in the whole year that I was there. You know, It's a really profoundly kind of etched on my heart, the, the beauty and the happiness that real open-hearted generosity can bring. I have lots of examples of this. Another example, not from Thailand, but from Tibet. I was watching a video a few years ago. It was called Home to Tibet. I don't know if any of you saw it. About a Tibetan man named Sonam, who actually, I don't know if he still does, but he used to live in western Massachusetts. And he built stone walls. And in this video, he uh, managed to go back home to Tibet to visit his family, his sister, people that were still there. He hadn't been to Tibet for many years. And he was sort of saying when he first went, he was a bit shocked by how old his sister looked, how really hard the life was, how really poor they were. You know, So he brought all kinds of gifts and money, and he was so happy to give it. And they were so happy. The old sister, when she got the gifts and the money. You could see, I mean, you were seeing this on the video. She just lit up transcendent joy. And why? Because now they could give more to the monastery. It was so beautiful. And so it's not to, you know, get into any kind of value judgment, just the, the happiness, the joy of that transcendent generosity is really deeply touching to me. So why does it make us so happy? I mean, it's kind of obvious. If we look deeply, of course, as with all actions, even actions of mind, the seed is in the intention more than in what we give. But in that intention of real giving, whether it's money or time or service or metta is a form of generosity of the heart. In that intention of giving, there's, it, it brings us into the sense of unity, doesn't it? It's not that I'm so great, I'm giving to you. That won't bring that same kind of happiness. It might bring a little, at least we're letting go. But that real generosity of, oh, you need this here. You know, there's not the self-referencing. It's coming from a sense of the big picture, the heart of non-clinging, our basic unity. And 
as we're acting from non-clinging, we experience the joy and the peace of non-clinging. On retreat here, I know there's not so much you can really do. And I actually, this might seem, (laughs) I I want to beg you not to go around trying to do generous things for each other. Because in some ways, the most generous thing we can each do is just let each other continue their practice. So, so sometimes, you know, when we talk about generosity, it does feel good. You know, you want to, like, ask the office to buy little things so you can go around and give it to everybody. But that's a lot of doing. You don't need to. You can just offer some metta in your heart. Or you can just do little things. When you see the place you always sit in the dining room, somebody's hovering, and you think, maybe I could let them sit there next time. <laughs> you know? There's intangible ways that we can offer the heart of generosity. And it's also generous to just let people be in their own space. So I know I just have to say that's a proviso just for here on the retreat. But you'll see, there's little ways of generosity. Notice it. Notice it when it's possible. And also, and this is I'm going to say also about morality, you can reflect consciously. When you're in a kind of a pit, you know, and you think, what's going to get me out of here? You know, there's not one good, wholesome, joyful thing I can imagine. Reflecting on acts of generosity, thoughts of generosity in your past, it's a way of, of the karma, karmic fruit ripening can actually bring a joy. It's the same with reflecting on our wholesome actions, on our sila, which is, again, something we don't do all that much because we think it's sort of egocentric. It's egocentric if we're doing it to say, I'm so generous, I'm so great, I'm more generous than that person. Well, that won't make us too happy. But to just hold in our heart those moments of generosity, it can bring us back into that unity of intention, into the joy. Or when we've been the recipients of generosity. So when I was talking just now about being in Thailand, the sense of happiness just washes through me. Deep gratefulness, which also opens us to happiness. Deep appreciation, you know, of generosity and being able to be the recipient, that I could finally let go of all my self-image of, no, I shouldn't take that, let me take care of myself, and just receive it, it made me tremendously happy as well. Okay, so Donna, Sila, or our non-harming conduct. This was the second thing the Buddha would always teach, it's often talked about as the bliss of blamelessness. I like that phrase, the bliss of blamelessness or freedom from remorse. Now, I know some of you and maybe all of you have at times had actions that you've done in the past or wish you'd done and didn't do or unkind things or just little things come up and experienced tremendous remorse or sorrow or regret over it. And some of the things, like when some people would tell me they're so little, you know, just such a little thing that you wouldn't even notice it in your daily life, really. And it's happened to me, too, sitting all the people whose letters I didn't answer, you know, all the phone calls I didn't return, all the little things I haven't done when, you know, reaching out might have made someone happy. And you can really sink into a, you know, a swamp of remorse. Remorse is useful in seeing, not with judgment, not with self-hatred, not with guilt, but in understanding the suffering that comes from our unwholesome speech and actions. But, you know, sometimes it can also go quite too far, just little things we're really beating ourselves about. But the our, our internal commitment, even though, of course, we're not perfect in it, To speak and act from that non-harming is, again, an an actualization of our oneness with all beings. And this bliss of blamelessness, this freedom from remorse, is actually a very profound and supportive form of happiness. And again, I think, at least many of the people I talk to, it's not something we consciously turn our minds to all that often. 
You know how in the beginning of the metta, the formal metta meditation, sometimes we'll say consciously reflect on something wholesome you've done or some good attitude of yours, and you know, sometimes people really can't think of anything, you know, or you think of some little thing and you think, well, that's too stupid, that's not good enough. But it's important. It's really important because it can bring a brightness, a confidence, uh, a sense of gladness to our mind and heart. If nothing else, and this isn't nothing, this is big, but reflect on the power and the sincerity of your intentions in pursuing a spiritual path at all. In all the moments here and in your life that you have cultivated kindness, honesty, awareness, metta, freedom, you know, non-harming, it's vast. It's really important to see and acknowledge this in ourselves, and it can be a major source of support in difficult times. You could consciously bring up a specific incident or a specific time where you were aware of appreciating something wholesome or non-harming that you did. And again, for us, it's difficult to know how to do this without falling into, aren't I great? But experiment with it. I really... I got a sense of how powerful this could be sort of by mistake a few years ago when one day, just out of nowhere, came a memory, the kind that comes up on retreat where you're, as if you're reliving it. Just a day many years ago when I worked in a sheltered workshop in North Carolina with moderately to severely mentally handicapped adults. It was, it was pretty intense work. But anyway, this one day came up. We were in this windowless garage with no air conditioning in North Carolina in the summer, 105 degrees outside. Anyway, it was, it was a charming environment. But I remember this one day in particular where, for some reason, I mean, I really, I really came to love the, the people in the workshop that I worked with. I can still remember a lot of them and their names and stuff. And this one day, for some reason... Just different, there were just several different little incidents of interactions where basically I was just being kind, being loving, and I was also receiving, for some reason, people were expressing in their way that sense of, of love and appreciation back. And even now, I think it was a very, it was just a very beautiful half a day or whatever. And when that memory came up, it brought with it that gladdening of the heart of of wholesomeness, that's all. It wasn't like I'm so great, you know. Just, just the wholesomeness of, of being kind, of doing the best I could, certainly non-harming, and of being able to receive that sense of connection with the people we were all working together. Again, it's the, it's the karmic fruits, you know, uh, coming up in this life, in this moment. That can really just bring up some brightness and energy and confidence. It's kind of like you take a deep breath and go, okay, one more five minutes of lifting, moving, placing, you know. Okay, I can come back and feel this tightness in the abdomen just as it is. It just brings in a spaciousness. It's a great balance for self-blame and self-judgment when you're getting lost in that. And again, if you no incident comes to mind, Reflect on your intentions. This freedom from remorse, which is what uh, attention to our conduct is, this bliss of blamelessness, also called freedom from remorse. I found an interesting sutta where the Buddha is talking about how skillful virtues have freedom from remorse as their purpose, Ananda, freedom from remorse as their reward. And then it goes through this whole list again, right? What's the purpose of freedom from remorse? What is its reward? And he says, joy is the purpose and the reward of freedom from remorse. And then guess what? From joy, he goes to rapture, to serenity, to um, sukha. He goes through the whole transcendent depending arising, exactly as I talked about the other day. It was on the board. Only instead of starting from faith, He's starting from skillful virtues and freedom from remorse. So I just think that 
don't overlook the power of our non-harming speech and action. It can have, it is the foundation, the grounding of our whole opening into freedom. It's the grounding of, you know, the joy and rapture, serenity, sukha, uh, concentration, which are all happinesses that come specifically in the meditative path, onward leading to the last one. Dispassion has knowledge and vision of release as its purpose, knowledge and vision of release as its award, as its reward. So in this way, Ananda, skillful virtues lead step by step to the consummation of arhantship, just in case you missed that. It's not a little thing. And it brings me to the point of how simply by our step-by-step willingness to pay attention to each of these areas, coupled with our mindfulness practice, this whole field of... um, not so much sense pleasures, but you could call it meditative joys and meditative happinesses arise. Those ones that I specifically mentioned, the joys of the secluded mind and heart, the rapture, the sukha, the concentration, the tranquility of mind. Those are specific states of happiness, of joy, in the mind, pervading the body, that are onward leading, right? They arise quite naturally in their own time through our continued attention to Dana Sila and our meditation practice. As well, the great joys called Vipassana happiness. You know, when, you, when there's a sudden insight arises, it brings a kind of happiness with it. Sometimes it's like a big release of energy, or there's more energy, or you feel happy, or you feel excited, but there's a, a real joy that comes with that. These aren't so much the kind of happiness that you can decide to access when you're in a pit of despair. So I'm mentioning these, but I'm not recommending that this is a practical means. Like when I saw those people walking down the driveway and all I could see is, okay, give them six months. I couldn't then say, well, I'll go inside and access sukha. You know, the mind wasn't in the state of seclusion at that time. And it's only possible to really open to and experience these more subtle states of joy and happiness when we're not entranced by sense pleasures, when the mind is more quiet, more secluded, more at peace. And they'll come in their own time. We can trust that. But if you get caught in wanting, as you know, forget about it. It just gets in the way. So only by the abandoning of the sense pleasures can we even begin to taste more subtle, but at the same time, much more satisfying, if you will, kind, these kinds of meditation, pleasures, and the happiness of Vipassana. I remember one retreat I was sitting with Sayada Upandita, and I was in one of these states of Vipassana happiness, and things just coming and going, coming and going very quickly. It's one of those classic stages where great rapture arises, joy arises, just to see everything coming and going. And I remember thinking at the time, different sense pleasures, anything you could think of, the thought of them would come up in my mind. And it was, so, it was really funny, because my mind would go, that's, that's not even appealing. That's gross. There was no sense pleasure that even could touch the happiness of this kind of apasana happiness. And even now, I, I don't experience that in the moment, that apasana happiness. But again, even in talking about it, some knowing of that, that peace, that happiness comes back. It doesn't mean I won't want sense pleasures again, but somewhere I know they don't really cut it, you know, in that same way as seeing things clearly, as the joy that comes from that, the heart and mind that doesn't need to hide from suffering and doesn't need to hold on to pleasure. There's a happiness so much greater in that. And it's onward leading as long as we keep paying attention. Even these uh, happiness of deep meditation, of concentration, if we stop paying attention, of course, we get caught there. 
as I know, I think Steve was talking about that, you know, getting caught within. Wow, this is so great. There's no happiness greater than this. Aren't I happy? This is really making, it starts to refer back to me again, back to me again, and how to, you know, prolong it. I think a little of this is inevitable, and don't worry about it, as long as we keep being mindful. Mindful of the happiness, mindful of the liking of it, mindful of how great it is. Just notice that. And I have ultimate faith that the awareness takes care of it. You'll move through that. You don't have to like say, oh, oh, Vipassana happiness, better, better back away. I might get attached. You know, let me go distract myself. Don't do that. So you get caught a little bit. Keep paying attention. The mindfulness will just take us through that place. Now, without paying attention, we do get caught. Caught in the cycle of me and self-referencing, caught in the cycle of clinging, or another place that we might not notice is that happiness turns into, it's actually the near enemy of empathetic joy, it turns into exuberance. And it happens a lot in interviews. People will come in with some insight and they're so happy and they're so filled with rapture or whatever and the energy's going up and they're, then suddenly you can see they just kind of want to run all over the building being happy, you know. All of a sudden there's all these things to do and all these expressions of it and it's exuberance. It's without mindfulness, the energy builds and we're not quite paying attention to it. It stops being so connected. We run around, do all kinds of stuff oh, I feel so great, I just need to run around the loop, you know, feeling this joy. And we come back with a thud sooner or later with that kind of exuberance because the mindfulness kind of went out the window. So you're happy, you're happy, then you're really high, then you're really excited, then all of a sudden you're like, oh, what happened? Ah, so you do that a couple of times, and then you'll learn. Maybe I can notice the energy's really high. This is happiness. Just keep being mindful. Don't try to hold on to it. Now I have five minutes for my favorite topic, but that'll make me ocean happy anyway. (laughs) One other specific way that we can access non-clinging, non-self-referencing joy in our practice here, in our practice in in the world, is through um, the conscious cultivation of one of the four Brahma-viharas, the one that's called mudita, appreciative joy. All the Brahma-viharas bring us a kind of happiness. Appreciative joy is, I have found it to be so practical and so useful as a way to consciously open the energy field, the heart, the mind, to happiness and joy when you're not particularly experiencing it yourself. So Mudita, I said Nyoshin would be happy because she's talking about all the Brahma-viharas next time she talks. So I won't talk too much about this. But mudita is defined as metta, turn towards someone's happiness, turn towards the joy or success of another. It's said to be the, the one of the four Brahma-viharas that's in some ways the most difficult or the most unfamiliar. I think maybe it's the one we're not in such a habit of. But I've found when I consciously turn my mind that way, it's pretty accessible and it's really fun. That's what's so nice about it. It's light, it's bright, it's energizing, and its near enemy is exuberance. But Ajahn Sumedho also talks about appreciative joy as being able to appreciate the beauty and the goodness in nature and in the things around us. It's sort of back to what I was talking about in the beginning, about appreciating beauty. And if you find that you can't quite yet connect to mudita with another person, you can begin by just appreciating consciously the beauty around or something that makes you happy in nature or a beautiful work of art, just something you see around here that makes you happy. But mudita is really turning our attention to the perceived happiness or success of another person and really saying in our heart, oh, may your happiness continue, may your success continue. In such a way, in doing that, is that that their joy, we get happy from it. It stops being their joy or my joy. It just becomes joy that's accessible in the world. So instead of having to rely on our own paltry resources for joy, we suddenly have the resources of the whole world. 
So you know when I read something in the newspaper about someone who's done something really generous or really good, how it, it can bring shivers and makes us really happy. That's the kind of mudita. I read about this man who works for uh, Ford or something. Yeah, he works for Ford in Detroit. Well, you probably can't see it. But he's 78. He's been working for Ford for many, many years, for 59 years. He makes 100000 a year because he works overtime all the time, and mostly he gives all his money away. He has given away, let's see, he's given to the United Negro College Fund um, over $200,000, $200,000 to Louisiana State University, $112,000 to different churches, $20,000 to the NAACP, $431,000 to Wayne State University. And he says, I get joy, happiness out of this. I can go home and sleep good. He lives in some little apartment, drives an old car. I mean, doesn't it make you happy to hear about? He's just this big smiling face. You know, you probably can't see it. That's mudita. We can consciously look for that, you know, and it's such a wonderful way because it's not just his goodness. How does it make us happy? It's because just as we all share suffering, we all share happiness, we all share goodness, it touches that place of unity in us. It's a really important thing to tune into. Of course, the far enemy is envy. It certainly gets in our way, in our, in our constant comparing mind. That sense of there's a finite amount of joy to go around. So when you're in a, you know, a down space and you see a yogi walking by looking really happy, do we say, oh, may your happiness continue? Or do we think, Oh, how come they're so happy? I'm really even doing worse than I thought, you know? We kind of take it as a way to reflect back on what a loser we are. Notice your mind do that. You can change the channel. You can consciously try to say, oh, may your happiness continue. Remember, it's intention. You don't have to feel it right away. But <laughs> try it. Try it. It really, it really opens so that other people's happiness stops being a threat and becomes a source of joy, a source of connection. You can start in very small ways. So, for instance, if you know, you're really having a hard time sitting still in the hall and you are really beating yourself up about it, and the person next to you comes in and sits like a rock for two and a half hours, you might not be able, quite in that moment, to feel mudita for that person. But you see someone else who's sitting outside smiling at the sunset, you can see mudita for that. Or I'll think of friends who get happy when their particular tennis star wins. Now, I don't really care what tennis person wins, what tennis match, you know. But my friend gets so happy, so I can think of him, and I can feel mudita for that. Now, the proviso is, of course, wholesome things, right? Not mudita for somebody who's doing something that's harmful to themselves or other. It's not really what we're talking about in wholesome joy. But just look around here and try it. It can really bring a balance to the mind and heart that's only seeing suffering. Even in the compassion, where we're connecting with suffering with compassion, there's sometimes that that's all we see. And we can consciously bring in the fact of joy. Just, just another couple of minutes. Um, it's important because we often tend to you know, see all one way or all another. Like when there's a lot of suffering in the world, to consciously look at someone who's smiling and think of joy, it almost sometimes to me feels like it's, it's cheating or it's shallow or inconsequential. Or to be honest, sometimes when I'm listening to news on the radio, you know, pick any of the difficult places around the world. So much suffering, so much torment. And I think about here we are in this little deva realm, you know, and we're getting upset at, you know, the things we're all getting upset about. But we're safe. We have so much to eat. We have the opportunity to practice. Now, my mind can go to how can that be possible? How can I appreciate that when there's so much suffering? But it's very important not to denigrate the joy, but to open the heart and mind to hold both. Because that's how it is in the world. 
It isn't all joy, and it isn't all suffering, and all of us experience both. Mudita is a conscious way to access the joy when we're drowning in suffering, but it's not a way that denies the suffering. And that's really what takes us into the highest happiness of peace, one that isn't dependent on only positive things or pleasant experience, one that isn't overwhelmed by difficult, by suffering, nor does the mind at peace identify with or blame oneself for the suffering either. If you look at some of the people who seem most awakened, who can tell from outside, but people who have really exhibited great love and care for this world, they seem really joyful at the same time that they've perhaps seen and been close to more suffering than I could ever imagine. This is, I'll just end with this. It's my favorite little photo. It's a photo of a conference of Nobel Peace Laureates. Yes, I'm sure some of you have seen it. As the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Desmond Tutu. I'm sure you can't see from here. It's a very dark photo from a newspaper. So these two guys together, Archbishop Desmond Tutu and the Dalai Lama, the amount of suffering, of cruelty that they've talked to people who've been through, that they've experienced in their two different countries of Tibet and South Africa is mind-boggling. And here they are together. They are yucking it up. The Dalai Lama is standing behind Archbishop Tutu trying to pull off his hat. The Archbishop Tutu is holding it on. They're both just yucking it up, you know, and just filled with this kind of, you know, simplicity of joy, you know, that I would say isn't in spite of, but maybe because of the ability to be with the suffering, but the ability to balance it with these other aspects of joy. So thanks for listening. Let's sit quietly for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.